by yesterday's Professor Kate Scholberg, who is Professor of Physics at Duke University. Her research interests include experimental elementary particle physics, astrophysics, and cosmology. Welcome, Kate. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So you had a number of papers last year. Seems like you have been very productive <laughs> as part of the pandemic. Uh, and I want to start with uh, supernova neutrino burst detection with a deep underground neutrino experiment. You say the deep underground neutrino experiment, DUNE, a 40 kiloton underground liquid organ time projection chamber experiment, uh, will be sensitive to the electron neutrino flavor component of the burst of neutrinos expected from the next galactic core collapse supernova. Such an observation will bring unique insight into the astrophysics of core collapse, as well as into the properties of neutrinos. Um, as I mentioned, Kate, I, I know very little about these subjects, um, but I, I, I sort of, after having done 350 of these, I sort of have some inklings of some of them. Uh, and so I want to get some definitions uh, out so that general public can understand them. So supernova, the way that I understand it, is really the death of a star, sort of an explosion, uh, and it's a violent process. Um, in our galaxy, in the Milky Way, it appears it doesn't happen that often. So it's, it's an interesting phenomenon to study. And the neutrinos is sort of subatomic particles, almost zero mass, and it, they don't uh, interact with regular mass. It's very difficult to find them. But it seems like they have a lot of information in them, right? So, so going back to Dune, what's the objective of Dune? Oh yeah, so so Dune is actually um, has a lot more to it than just the supernova neutrino aspect of it. Although the supernova neutrino aspect of it is is kind of what I'm I'm most uh, personally working on. Although I'm actually excited about all the physics of Dune. Dune is really studying uh, generally the 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 properties of neutrinos. It's actually um, part of a, a bigger complex that involves a uh, a high intensity beam of neutrinos from Fermilab, which is near Chicago, to South Dakota, which is where the detector, the deep underground neutrino experiment detector, which is a very large argon detector that will be underground. And so the um, Dune experiment comprises um, all of this, also detectors that are near uh, or nearby it at Fermilab. Um, and really the purpose of Dune is, is the primary purpose. It has multiple topics that it can address. It's to understand the properties of neutrinos themselves. And so neutrinos, as you, as you mentioned, they're uh, particles that are fundamental particles. They're part of what we call the standard model of particle physics, which is our best um, model for what the fundamental particles and their interactions are underlying everything in the universe. And neutrinos are some of the fundamental particles like electrons and, and uh, quarks, which you also may have heard about. Uh, neutrinos are very uh, odd particles, they're very strange in that they are, as you mentioned, extremely light. We actually now know, we've known for a few decades that they have, they actually do have a non-zero mass. And actually that discovery, which I was involved in as a, as a postdoc actually, um, that, that is huge to know that they have, um, have some mass that really makes an enormous difference in how we think about them as part of, uh, part of the standard model. Um, and their uh, properties are, are really important for understanding the entire big picture of nature. Um, in, not only the uh, um, underlying interactions of everything, but also the entire history of the universe. And in fact, they may be, and it's actually not clear exactly how, this is also kind of a puzzle, they may be actually involved in um, the generation of the matter asymmetry of the universe, um, in the sense that if you look around, everything is made of matter, but there's also uh, what's called antimatter, which is um, like matter, except the properties are inverted in terms of charge and other, other quantum numbers. Um, and it's uh, not clear why, because the properties of matter and antimatter are, sim are sort of similar, it's not really clear why, uh, you know, why is it that there's this enormous asymmetry, why is everything, almost everything matter and antimatter is extremely rare. And mm. part of the underlying purpose of, of Dune is uh, to understand understand the properties of neutrinos, um, which may be connected to these really big picture questions about the generation of matter asymmetry in the universe and other, you know, generally other questions about how did the universe um, evolve. 
Yeah, so, so um, you said potentially a non-zero mass for neutrinos. So, so I want to take a bit of a tangent, Kate. Uh, so, so we have this big problem with dark matter, and a lot of candidates there, axions and others. Yeah. Um, so since we don't have precise measurement of the mass of the neutrinos, and they're abundant, I would imagine, in the universe, Yes. If, if if there is sort of a marginal difference in the mass computation, um, is it possible that they would actually be a candidate for the, the dark matter? So um, that's a great question. And the answer is that they are probably a bit of the dark matter, um, but their properties as we understand them now are such that they very likely do not account for uh, most of the dark matter. That is still that is still a mystery what what that is um, you know some of the best hypotheses are that it's some kind of particle and um, very so, something some kind of particle that would be beyond the standard model you know actually one of the uh, you know, we have the standard model in particle physics and that everybody wants to get beyond it it's all about DSM which is beyond the standard model um, and uh, dark matter particles will are very likely some kind of new particle um, the properties of neutrinos are even though they do have some mass and they are they are part of the dark matter, it's probably only um, a percent level part. It's not enough to account for the gravitational effects that we see. So, so I want to dig a little bit into neutrinos. So um, I remember reading uh, different flavors of neutrinos. Uh, you guys are very good at coming up with names in physics. Uh, so so what, what do you mean by different flavors of neutrinos? Oh, it, it really means just different types. And uh, the flavors of neutrinos actually correspond to the flavors of what we call the leptons. So among the fundamental particles, we have um, three flavors of, um, of fundamental leptons. And so the, the most familiar one, everybody knows about electrons. And so electron flavor is, uh, the electrons are, are massive particles and um, they have electron flavor. There's a particle that's 200 times heavier than an electron called a muon which is unstable, and that's another flavor. So muon flavor is another flavor of charged leptons, so electrons and muons are charged. And there's a yet heavier, very massive version, which is um, also very unstable, which is called a tau, a tau lepton. And they also, all of those particles have anti-matter um, um, partners. So there's electrons and positrons that have electron flavor. There's um, negative muons and positive muons that have muon flavor, and then negative and positive taus that have tau flavor. And the, the neutrinos actually um, interact. So electron neutrinos interact in a certain way with the charged leptons. I mean, very rarely the interactions are there, but they're very weak. And they have the same flavors as the leptons. So electrons have partners that are electron neutrinos that will, electron neutrinos will interact with electrons um, in our standard model interaction picture. Muon neutrinos will interact with muons um, and tau neutrinos will interact with tau. So yeah, so these flavors are really just these um, families, these types of, um, of particles. And actually that's another huge mystery is why are there three families of successively more massive particles? You know, that's uh, why not four? Uh, in fact, there are uh, beyond the standard model extensions that do posit there, that there are more families, um, but we have constraints on um, the nature of the number and nature of these families from cosmology and from laboratory experiments. Um, but yeah, that's actually another one of the, that's a theoretical question is, is why is it that we have these, um, these three families or generations, they're also known as generations of leptons. Um, mm. Yeah, no, so that's a, um, understanding the nature of the, the flavors is another um, sector of particle physics and that neutrinos connects to as well. So, so different types of neutrinos, if I understand this properly, uh, Kate, different types of neutrinos interact with different fundamental particles like electrons and muons and so on. Uh, and so why do we, so, so are we sure they are all neutrinos or could they be different particles? Um, that is actually, that is really a great question that um, in fact, that is uh, um, a possible direction of, and it's experimental question, both actually experimental and uh, theoretical question. Um, in fact, this is one of the things that the experiments that I work on are, are looking for is in fact, um, 
new kinds of particles or interactions that are inconsistent with what we expect from the standard model. The standard model is, um, it's both beautiful and frustrating in that it, <laughs> it does it does make very crisp predictions of what the interaction should look like um, in our in our picture, and it's it's actually a, a beautiful simple picture. Um, and so far, there are only really there are some hints, you know, experimental hints of things that aren't quite consistent. You know, you when you scatter particles off each other, you expect a certain rate and a certain set of um, a certain set of properties that the kicked particles have. In fact, this connects to some of my other papers, for example, the scattering, neutrino scattering uh, experiments. Um, when, you, when you take what you think is a beam of neutrinos and you um, throw it at some, some nuclear targets, you know, you throw it at some, some atoms uh, and the neutrinos scatter off the, um, off the nuclei in the atoms, um, you, in, the, in the standard model, that really predicts exactly what you expect. You know, very clean, crisp prediction. You know, you expect to see so many recoils, um, not very many for neutrinos because neutrinos interact only rarely, but you expect some. Um, and you expect um, those recoils to look in a certain way. You expect to have a certain distribution of energies and directions and so on. And part of the experimental game is, you know, is to test that prediction. You know, if we throw these neutrinos at atoms and see something different from what we expect, then that could indicate that there is some kind of new physics there. It could be some um, BSM, beyond the standard model interaction. We also call them non-standard interactions, um, which is uh, something where if you get a distribution of uh, recoils, you know, more of them are going that direction than that direction or have too high energy or don't have the right, aren't happening at the right times, you know, that kind of thing. That can tell you that oh my God, there's something that is not consistent with the standard model and it could point to some new physics. So for example, if you have an excess at low energy, you get lots of them that are really just pinging off of very softly, you expect a certain number, but you've seen more of those, that could indicate, for example, new kinds of electromagnetic interactions of neutrinos, which you, know, you don't expect neutrinos are neutral, you don't expect much inter electromagnetic interaction at all, they, they don't have charge, but if you see the, the particles ping off in a certain way, too many of them at, at low energy, then that could tell you that there's some kind of new particle and new new interaction. So that's that's kind of the game. That's really a lot of the game of particle physics is you're really pounding on the standard model assumption to try to figure out, is there something there beyond? And theorists come up with all kinds of scenarios. You know, They can dream up all kinds of new particles, new flavors, new families, completely new things, different masses, all kinds of different properties. Um, and, um, you know, one approach is to pick some of those theories and then specifically test them, you know, look at some particular um, theory that posits that there's some kind of um, what are called portal, portal particles that then generate uh, dark matter like particles. And then you would expect a very specific thing in your detector and you can look and, and if you see, oh, oops, it just looks like the standard model, um, then you can rule out those theories, or at least rule out um, large swaths of possible parameters for those theories. Um, and then other, other approaches are to just look broadly for something that's weird. And that's always harder, you know, it's really um, because uh, in real life, ex real experimental life will bring you lots of weird things. <laughs> Uh, so it's, yeah. it's hard, a harder way to do an experiment, but um, but we can we can do it that way. Yeah, like you say, standard model both beautiful and frustrating. Um, it makes some beautiful predictions, uh, but from a layman's perspective, if I if I propose a theory and I say I don't know ninety five percent of what's happening in the universe. That you know that, that theory is not sufficiently robust. Enough. Oh, that's absolutely right. I mean, the, the standard model is. I mean, that's that's really the huge issue of physics, uh, um, experimental physics that we have is that we do have very strong evidence that the standard model is not the only only description. There's got to be more uh, out there um, because of dark matter, which is experimentally extremely well established. I mean, really the astronomical observations are very clear that there's more mass out there than we see in normal matter. 
and you know the question is what what is it and we don't know what it is so we we really can be quite confident there's something beyond uh beyond the standard model it's just we don't know what it is and we you know we have to test it in any way that we can but yeah, but yeah i mean that is that is one of the things we do and some of some of the things we do is specifically test models that would predict certain kinds of dark matter and um we can uh look at our data and say okay this is consistent with it or not consistent with it and so far, it's all consistent with the standard model. Yeah. So that's that's the frustrating part. Yeah. So from a policy perspective, you know, I just want to quickly touch on this. I mean, this is very very fundamental question. Um, yeah. How does the universe work? Why do we exist? All those questions, and we don't really have very clear answers to them. Yep. And we have to approach them both from a theoretical perspective as well as from an experimental perspective. And hopefully we will we will meet in the middle. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and that's the only way we're going to sort of close the loop on this, right? So so going back to the neutrinos, so do, do we have a way to produce neutrinos? Uh, is there some sort of production facility we have on Earth? Oh, absolutely. Yes, we do have lots of ways of producing neutrinos. I mean, neutrinos, we have uh, a lot of natural neutrinos. And in fact, the experiments I work on look for those kind of natural neutrinos. And you know, case in point there is the Dune experiment. Uh, well, the thing that I work on is, is trying to see that natural source of a supernova burst, a really bright burst of neutrino coming from a dying star. But actually, the day job of Dune, um, that unfortunately, we expect the supernova to happen only every 30 years or so. So during the lifetime of the experiment, we might see nothing just from bad luck. But there's also every 30 years. Sorry, Kate, sorry to interrupt. Every 30 years in the Milky Way mm -hmm. or yeah. generally speak in the Milky in Way? In the Milky Way. In the universe, there's um, many, many more. I mean, in, in um, uh, lots of supernovae are visible optically uh, from other galaxies, but those galaxies are too far away for us to actually see significant numbers of neutrinos from them. So the detectors we have online for neutrinos, because neutrinos are so weakly interacting, uh, you need a lot of them, and so you need to be relatively close in order to see the burst from a dying star. And really our range is gonna be approximately the Milky Way or maybe somewhat outside. Um, we probably would see a little bit of neutrino action coming from Andromeda, which is uh, the next big galaxy over, but um, really, uh, it's really only our local area that we are um, sensitive to neutrinos from. So the, the scope, is the scope that we look at is sort of the radius of the Milky Way, like 26 million light years or so? Yeah, right. So we, I mean, we are just sitting there. That we have, There's detectors online now that are sensitive to neutrinos, for example, Super K, uh, neutrinos from a, um, from a supernova burst. You know, we're just sitting there and waiting. You know, it's not something where you scan the sky or anything, you, you know, you're underground, you just sit and wait to see uh, to see a burst. Uh, and and there's several detectors that are online now that are sensitive to a burst of, of supernova neutrinos. Yeah, it's a beautiful fireworks, but it doesn't happen oh, yeah. more than once. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> although actually, you know, one thing that would be really exciting, actually, would be to see no supernova. Because mm -hmm. one thing that can happen is when a star dies, it can actually uh, subsequently collapse to a black hole in which case you might not have very much fireworks at all. You would get a, uh, so the, the normal thing that would happen is you'd get a neutron star and then you get uh, a, a giant explosion, which you can see in optical radiation and other kinds of radiation and actually maybe gravitational waves. But um, some of the time, if the star is massive enough and then enough matter accretes, it can actually further collapse and actually create a black hole, in which case the explosion may be, um, yeah, and so, however, in that case, you actually still get a bright neutrino burst early on for a few seconds that would then sharply cut off. And so a really cool thing that we might see, it's actually not really known what fraction of the time it happens, but a really cool thing we might see is the uh, a bright burst of neutrinos over a couple seconds that then suddenly shuts off. And then you would see, and you might see nothing astronomically. You might see gravitational waves, and if, actually if you could see those at the same time, that would also be really cool. But I think the uh, a really exciting thing would be is if, you, if you saw that kind of thing in neutrinos and maybe gravitational waves, uh, you might actually be able to identify a progenitor that winked out, which would be, that would be great because that would be really a, um, a direct 
observation of a formation of a black hole. So that is a possible thing that we so, might be able to see. So that's the function of the size of the star, I would imagine, right? So yes. Um, and so if I understand this correctly, Kate, um, so if it's going to collapse to a neutron star, there is a lot of dramatics that we can see. <laughs> I don't know if it's the right word, but uh, and if it is big enough and it's going to collapse into a black hole, then you will see some initial sort of activity and then things sort of disappear, right? Is that is that what we expect? Yeah, I think it's um, exactly what you see um, astronomically. And I'm, I'm not actually an astronomer. I'm a fake astronomer. I'm a, I'm a physicist, really. Uh, but my understanding is that if you have such an event where you just have a collapse to a black hole, you might not see very much at all. And you might see some... Uh, some wavelengths of, um, you know, some sort of shenanigans in, in some some wavelengths, but it would be potentially a quite a quite dim um, event. So, but I think it's all of this is really quite unknown. This is why we would really be excited to yeah. actually observe such a thing. More data is needed. So, if, based on the demographics of stars that we know in the Milky Way, what percentage of them? is likely to go into a neutron star type collapse as opposed to black hole? That is a very good question that I don't think anybody really knows the answer to. Um, the answer is clearly uh, not 100% of stars become black holes because we do have examples of neutron stars. And um, actually 87A, I think there's no confirmed remnant, so we actually don't really know what happens in that one. Um, uh, so it's it's not 100% and we know it's not zero, so um, it's somewhere in between those. Um, okay. And there are estimates that you know could be, uh, it's probably less than 50%, but uh, I don't think anybody knows that. So this 30-year estimate, you know, once every 30-year type estimate, is that based on our expectation of a neutron star type collapse, or generally speaking, that's, that's what Yeah, that's the estimate for core collapse. And there's also that that number is also fairly poorly known as well. Um, that that um, there are a range of estimates based on different uh, kinds of information, you know, based on what we know about how stars um, evolve, uh, based on populations of remnants, um, based on historically observed supernovae, based on observations in other galaxies, uh, you know, and then you have to um, you have to know what type of galaxy our galaxy is compared to the other ones. And the estimates range over quite a, a large range um, from everything from maybe every 20 years to once every 100 years or so. So we, we don't really know what the real frequency is. But it's, it's, uh, it's, it's probably something around three per century or so. So, so what's the, um, it's a little bit of a tangent, what's the expectation of our own sun? I know that another 4 billion years will become a red giant. Yep. And then, uh, so will it go into a neutron star type situation or I what is the expectation? Our sun is not massive enough to be exciting from the point of view of <laughs> neutrino production. Um, yeah, it will probably become a, um, I think almost certainly become a white dwarf and white dwarf. Uh, not uh, not explode in uh, a great fireworks explosion, which I, I that's too bad. We would have had frontline seats for it. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so, so I know that you're working on something um, which is also uh, very, very related: the a next generation supernova early warning system mm -hmm. for multi messenger astronomy. So this astronomy has become very interesting now because you could you could look at a lot of different things and now we have gravitational waves too and so you see the next core collapse supernova in the milky way or in satellites which will present a once in a generation opportunity to obtain detailed information about the explosion of a star and provide significant scientific insight for a variety of fields because the extreme conditions found within Supernovae in the galaxy are not only rare on a human time scale, we talked about that, but also happen at unscheduled times. So it's crucial to be ready to use all available instruments to capture all possible information from the event. So I think engineering advancements and advancements in a lot of different areas of astronomy and cosmology now sort of converging that we can look at an event in a lot of different ways, but a lot of different perspectives, right? That makes yes. it really interesting, yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. So the, the point of snooze is actually just to make sure really that we capture all possible information um, 
that will be available when a core collapse happens. Because, uh, you know, as, as we were just talking about, it's it's rare on the scale of a human lifetime. You know, lucky, lucky, you're lucky to get one in your career. <laughs> and yeah. I'm hoping, I'm still, I'm still hoping for one. I still have, hope I have enough decades left that one a supernova will, will happen. Um, but there will be potentially so much information in in many channels you know neutrinos is just one of them neutrinos is actually a particularly interesting channel to get information from a supernova because the neutrinos come out from very deep inside you know we have relatively few of them you know the weakness of their interactions it's, it's a blessing and a curse you know the the curse is that you need huge detectors to get any neutrinos uh, to actually see any neutrinos but the blessing is they really you can actually see what is happening very deep inside this very massive dense uh, exotic object, um, but there will be other, you know, other things. You know, so neutrinos are particularly interesting, but there are all kinds of other messengers. And actually, multi-messenger astronomy is really now a thing uh, for not just quark collapse supernovae, but other kinds of exotic objects. You have information from basically all the electromagnetic spectrum, you know, from gamma rays and X-rays to radio waves, and these um, these signals can come at uh, all different times, you know, a, a core collapse supernova has a, um, a long uh, lifetime right from the, the collapse part where you can see it with the neutrinos and the gravitational waves out to, you know, months and years. In fact, you know, 7A is oh, wow. observed now. Right? That's a famous supernova that happened in 87. Um, and you get different information from all different wavelengths at all different times. And that tells you all kinds of things about what's going on in the uh, environment and, and, um, and so on. Um, and uh, actually, gravitational waves is a, a particularly very interesting messenger um, in that that is also prompt, but also tells you things um, that are happening very deep inside. So they're in some ways akin to the neutrinos uh, in that they are uh, you know, really um, telling you about the internal, um, internal mechanism of what's, what's happening. And so that would be really exciting. Yeah, months or years, that's very counterintuitive, Kate. I know nothing about it. So you're saying this process of a star dying is going to take many months. Well, the aftermath is very many months. The aftermath. So the, the collapse is very rapid, um, and the formation of the neutron star is, is very rapid, and the uh, time scale of emission of the neutrinos. So that's where all the collapse uh, and initial explosion excitement is happening, and that is a scale of tens of seconds. So that's very prompt. And that's also where the gravitational wave signal will come. Uh, that comes from uh, basically the enormously dense matter actually uh, shaking up space-time enough to generate a signal of gravitational waves. And that, uh, so that, that's a, you know, a pretty dramatic signal, but that's also very likely on a very short, um, short time scale. But then what happens if you have an actual collapse is you have this shock wave, you know, the, the matter scrunches down and then it, um, it bounces back up and it creates a shock wave, which then heats the surrounding matter and disrupts everything and just blows everything into smithereens. And it's all of that uh, energy that's getting dumped into the matter that overlies the star. That's what glows brilliantly as the electromagnetic radiation of the supernova. And, there's enormous information in that in um, that if we gather that information, we can learn about the uh, environment of the supernova. We can learn about the, I mean, this is sort of moving out of my immediate area of expertise, but my understanding is there's enormously interesting information about the astrophysics of the object that you can glean from uh, observing those, um, those photons, that electromagnetic signal that comes in uh, in the time after the supernova and the glow lasts um, for a long time and in the the actual um, star takes some time to blow up i mean the shock wave can take quite a while i mean this is why supernova early warning system is an early warning system it can take um, half an hour or hours or even a day to actually see the first light because it takes a long time for that shock wave to actually propagate through the matter and heat it up enough to make a really bright supernova and then the supernova can take quite a long time to get to its brightness peak in photons. Mm. And then it can take months to slowly, um, you know, the glowing embers to, to die down. And, you know, these, um, you can still watch this remnant for, well, for a really long time. In fact, there's a whole 
subfield of astronomy, which is concerned with looking for uh, supernova remnants, uh, where you can actually see this expanding uh, debris um, and, and learn a lot from it as well. Uh, there's also um, a lot of it is radioactivity as well. And what happens is you get these uh, uh, radiological radiological debris. I mean, this, there's so much going on. There's neutrons and particles flying around that you um, get a generation of new elements, in fact. Um, in fact, the, uh, there's some, something called nucleosynthesis, you know, basically the formation of elements, uh, at least some of them, elements that we actually see around us now, you know, there are heavy elements were actually formed in supernovae. Um, Although I think the, the current uh, thinking is actually not all of them are in supernova. Some of them are actually born in uh, different kinds of events, basically um, neutron star mergers, uh, which are the kind of things that make these gra um, gravitational wave signals. Um, and so some nuclear synthesis certainly happens. In fact, it might be most of it happens in uh, neutron star mergers or black hole mergers, um, compact object mergers. But some of it also certainly happens in supernova events where you have actually creation of, of new, new kinds of matter. And there are signatures of that happening. Um, if you, what you can see observationally is the, um, for instance, gamma rays that come from um, certain kinds of uh, transitions, nuclear transitions that are a, a signature of different kinds of um, new, new kinds of nuclei being born in that supernova. Mm. And that's all the aftermath. That happens yeah. for a long period of time. So the multi-messenger astronomy is quite quite important. You know, now sometimes I, I feel, Kate, that somebody has set this all up for us uh, <laughs> in the sense that, <laughs> that there is different information channels that appear to start at different times and prolong to different durations. Uh, and so infrared, gamma, uh, gravitational waves, neutrinos, and so it, it's a little bit, it looks like somebody has set this up, you know, just, just, just give, the, give these guys some information. Let's see if they're going to figure this thing out. Um, but um, so, so that is why this early warning system is quite important, right? So if we can sort of get a red flag uh, very, very early in the process, that we can go in and pick up a lot of information from a lot of different channels from there, right? That's the idea. Yes, that's the idea, is to try to get the very early turn on of the supernova, um, right when the light, you know, right as the shock is breaking out, if you can actually observe that really early light, um, that, that can be very valuable for understanding what the environment of progenitor is. So yes, that, that's kind of the point of the of news that's called supernova early warning system, yep. So when was the last observation of supernova in the Milky Way? Um, there. Actually, in the Milky Way was quite a long time ago. There were the Tycho and Kepler uh, supernovae, um, which were um, not very, not very recent. Um, the most recent observation of a nearby supernovae was uh, supernova was uh, in 1987. That was a very famous 1987A supernova that was in the Large Magellanic Cloud, which is not strictly our galaxy, but it's just so a satellite. Satellite galaxy. Satellite so galaxy, yeah. So it's just outside our galaxy. And that was um, uh, in 1987, uh, hence, hence the name. Um, and that was a supernova for which we did observe neutrinos. Um, in fact, it was, I think, the first observation of extragalactic neutrinos, um, maybe extra solar system neutrinos even. Um, and that was uh, not very many neutrinos. There were two uh, water detectors, um, one of about um, three kilotons and one of about eight kilotons, I think, uh, one in the US and one in Japan, uh, which observed a couple of dozen of neutrino interactions inside them at the time of 1987-8. Uh, coincident, you know, all within a, a few tens of seconds um, at the time of the core collapse, which was before uh, the time of the first light from the supernova, as one would expect. And so that was, that was, a, that was a huge deal. And of course yeah. we, want, uh, we want to see that again, but nearby with bigger detectors online. So the 30th duration, we are almost due for one, hopefully. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, yes, it is, it is about time. I'm kind of hoping it will hold off just a little bit until we have the really good detectors. <laughs> and we, we have the, all the instruments in place. Um, so the supernova early warning systems, uh, systems, news, you say, another nice acronym. 
and so it's in place now, right? It, it is um, so it is tracking all this information almost auto, in a sort of autonomous way, and then if it catches something, it is going to send emails to everybody. Is that the idea? Yeah, so it's basically just sitting and waiting, really. It's not uh, really doing very much actively other than waiting. Um, the individual detectors in the network uh, do have active monitors. So each of the individual detectors has uh, typically some kind of online uh, fast monitoring system looking at the data as it comes in in real time uh, to see if there's some kind of burst that looks like a supernova burst. And if any of those individual detectors sees something that looks sufficiently like a supernova burst, um, that detector will send a message to the SNU central computer. And the central computer just sits there and waits, and if it gets more than one message within 10 seconds, then it sends out an alert to the community. So that, that's the current version of SNUs, which is still running, and we're actually working on, um, it's actually mostly my colleagues, I'm, I'm less, less involved in it, I'm, I'm still involved, uh, but my colleagues are working on a uh, an upgraded version of Snooze, which we call Snooze 2.0, which will have um, much broader functionality um, and possibly better directionality, better, um, very likely better ability to, from that neutrino interaction information, tell us where the supernova is in the sky, which will be, of course, obviously very valuable for, for astronomers. So I know that, you know, you, you have, um, you have done a lot of work on the neutrino arena. So I remember reading, and I obviously didn't understand a lot of it, but um, the the neutrino information actually gives you a lot of information as to what the event was, uh, how it started, how it progressed, and all of that, right? So, so what what is the what is the intuition there? How does a, a subatomic particle give us so much information? Um. Oh, that's a that's a great question. You mean about the supernova? Um, about a supernova. Yeah, yeah. So that that's a great question. I guess maybe the um, most obvious thing is it tells us about the temperature inside, because the energy of the neutrino uh, depends on how hot it was inside the supernova. Hmm. And so, um, you know, it's I guess a bit like measuring a um, spectrum of photons. You know, you can you can tell if if uh, uh, by if the light, if you're if you're looking at a, a piece of metal in a fire, if it's um, depending on its color, if it's red or it's white, um, will tell you something about the temperature of the piece of metal. It's a bit similar for the neutrinos. If if we have higher or lower energy neutrinos that we observe on Earth, and we can tell um, to some degree certainly what their energies are when we see them, um, depending on how hard they bash into matter. If they bash harder, they have higher energy. Um, from those energies, we can uh, learn about the temperature of the core of the collapsing star and the proto-neutron star. So it's the flavors, it's the sort of the, the composition of the flavors of neutrinos coming the flavors, out. Flavors, yeah. Different. I mean, that's that's actually a whole complex and very interesting story. Um, but we, um, the main feature that we expect for the flavors, we actually expect all of them approximately equally for most of the burst um, because they're actually uh, emitted mostly in reactions that don't care about the flavor. Um, and actually what that means is that if we see different, uh, something different from that, that could tell us about the flavor transitions, which in turn can tell us about the properties of neutrinos. And so that's actually a really interesting thing to look at. It's, it's, that's a simplification. It's, it's actually more complicated than that. There's actually some very interesting possible modifications of the flavor that you can get um, from, um, and this is something that is really boggles the mind, uh, inside the supernova, it can actually be dense enough that you actually have neutrinos interacting with each other. You know, and, and that's that's an insane thing to think about because neutrinos hardly interact with regular matter. When you think about them interacting with each other, that's that's crazy. Um, but in fact, it may be dense enough. There may be enough of them that they do interact with each other. And that actually gives very, um, very exotic quantum mechanical effects when that happens. And we may be able to see some signatures of those by looking at the flavors that come out of the supernova if it's not the standard thing that we expect. So that's that's a, a potentially interesting, uh, interesting. Yeah. Thing. I also saw something about oscillations of mm -hmm. neutrinos. So yes. do they actually change as they travel? Yes. 
yes, they do. And so that, in fact, how we know that neutrinos have mass is because they change their flavor. It's impossible for neutrinos to change their flavor unless they have mass. And that's a that's kind of a quantum mechanical wave effect. It's because a, uh, a given mass has a particular wavelength if when it propagates um, in quantum mechanics when particles are, are waves. And if you have multiple masses, um, so flavors are actually made of different mass states. And if you have multiple masses, they interfere. It's kind of like beating. Um, and if you can observe that beating, then you can infer that neutrinos have mass. And so that's that's part of how we know how neutrinos have mass. And we've actually known that for a couple of decades now. Um, and indeed, this can happen in the supernova. In fact, in the presence of matter, there's a bunch of complications. Um, but in the presence of matter, there's specific things you expect for how those flavors transition. Um, if they change as the neutrinos propagate through the supernova. And in fact, that's that's part of why we want to see these, if we can measure the different flavors on Earth um, as a function of time and energy, that really gives us, uh, can give us in insight into actually not only the astrophysics of what's happening in the star, but also about particle physics. We could actually potentially learn about neutrino-neutrino uh, interactions. And, and actually so we have some sort of uh, theoretical expectations of how they should oscillate, and hence yeah. whatever we capture, we can back compute what, yes, what yes that's, that's basically exactly right. Yes, so we do um, have a reasonable understanding of how neutrinos should oscillate, and there's actually many uh, experiments uh, that we've done terrestrially on Earth um, you know, over the past several decades that have uh, demonstrated uh, and are consistent with a, our understanding of how um, neutrino oscillations should work. There are a few anomalies. You know, there's always some there's some weird experimental data out there, so there might be more to it than we can we think. And um, that allows us, that picture that we have, that model from the terrestrial experiments allows us to predict uh, what we would expect from the supernova. And that's another way we can test the standard model. In fact, is to, um, you know, it, 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 is a, uh, it is a complicated system. So there are complications there, um, but it is a, a way we can uh, further search and fact for, for physics beyond the standard model is to um, test whether we're really getting what we expect from a supernova. If we, if we yeah, so let's hope we get a fireworks in the next few years. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I want to finish up with your other paper, Coherent at the Spallation Neutron Source. Mm -hmm. uh, the Spallation Neutron Source, SNS, at Oak Ridge National Laboratory provides an intense high-quality source of neutrinos from uh, Pion DK at rest. Uh, the source was recently used uh, for the first measurements of coherent elastic neutrino nuclear scattering uh, by the coherent collaboration, resulting in uh, new constraints of beyond the standard model physics. Um, yeah, so I didn't understand this at all, uh, Kate. So, um, so there's a there's a neutron source, SNS at Oak Ridge, and uh, so so what, what what does that give us? So this is, I, I guess, this comes back to the question you were asking before about artificially making neutrinos, and so we yeah. absolutely can do that, and this is one way to do it. And in fact, um, it actually happens. This particular way actually happens to make neutrinos that are a lot like supernova neutrinos in terms of their energy spectrum. They're about the same temperature as supernova neutrinos. It, it so happens, which is maybe partly why I, I'm interested in it. Um, there's there's connections to understanding of supernova neutrinos. So um, it's a neutron source. So it makes um, it's it's day job. The reason the SNS was built um, was actually nothing to do with neutrinos. It was built in order to create neutrons for all kinds of science, you know, for material science and engineering and biology and all kinds of things. So there's a, a rich program of um, measurements using neutrons at the at the SNS in Oak Ridge. Um, and um, it turns out that just by tremendous serendipity, the SNS is the world's most fabulous neutrino source as well. Right. And uh, that's kind of by accident. Um, <laughs> it, it happens that when you are making neutrons, so the way you make neutrons is you take protons and you accelerate them and you smash them into some target. Uh, and um, those the atoms in the target, it happens to be mercury. It's actually this really impressive giant liquid mercury thing. Um, the atoms, the, the nuclei of the mercury atoms will splat. It's the spallation. They just basically um, get smashed up. 
Um, that creates neutrons, and those neutrons get funneled out to, use, uh, to be used by different experiments. But you also make pions, which are um, another kind of particle, a composite particle, um, uh, also a hadron. Um, so it's made of quarks, um, but they're um, short-lived particles. So it makes a bunch of pions as well as, as neutrons. And pions decay, they're unstable. And Does it have a charge? Pion has a charge? Well, there are different kinds. There are neutral uh, and plus and minus charged ones. And in fact, the, um, the neutral ones will make, um, they will decay into photons, which we don't, we don't care about. Well, actually we care about them for other reasons, but for the immediate neutrino production, we don't care about those. Um, the negative ones actually get sucked up by nuclei. So they actually don't usually make neutrinos that we see. Uh, they're negative, so they get attracted to nuclei and, and get swallowed up. But the positive ones, what happens to them um, on a short time scale is, um, so uh, less than microsecond time scale, they uh, will stop. They come to a, a stop in the matter, and then they decay at rest. And among the decay products is a muon and a muon neutrino. So you know, the, the flavors are coupled. You get a uh, you always get a muon with a muon neutrino. And the muon subsequently that's another unstable particle um, that decays in two microseconds. And when it decays, it produces a, um, a muon antineutrino and an electron neutrino, as well as an electron. And the electron, we don't we don't see that just sits in the target, but we get three neutrinos every time one of these pions stops and dies, and we get lots and lots and lots of them. So there are tons of these pions being produced, and they produce these. And this is a weak interaction decay, so it's one of the fundamental um, interactions, and we understand it very well. This is a decay that's you know. Um, uh, muon decay, for example, that's a, a staple of undergraduate experimental physics, uh, looking looking for that. So this this particular decay is um, very well understood, and it produces neutrinos in the range of energies of supernova neutrinos, actually. So mm -hmm. up to about 50 MeV, so it's it, it's kind of a almost a fake supernova spectrum, not exactly the same as a supernova, but it's it's very similar. And there's enormous flux of them. And of course, normally you don't notice it all because the neutrinos are just going out to infinity and they go right for things and nobody, they don't bother anybody. But we've got enormous flux of them coming from the, uh, from, from the SNS. And what we did, um, the coherent collaboration, is a, uh, we were able to take advantage of this flux by um, putting detectors in a basement. And this was actually another huge piece of serendipity is it turns out there was a, um, a storage area in the basement of the SNS where there, in fact, is some shielding from cosmic rays and actually a lot of shielding from neutrons. Neutrons are actually are bad because they make background for neutrinos. Uh, and we were able to deploy some detectors in the basement of the SNS and um, make the first measurement of a particular kind of neutrino interaction, which is called coherent elastic neutrino and nucleus scattering, which is an interaction that's actually by neutrino standards uh, happens a lot. It's actually a very high rate interaction. It's when the neutrino comes in and it smacks a nucleus and uh, it doesn't care about the flavor. Actually, this interaction happens for all the flavors and that nucleus just rolls off. So it's kind of like um, the analogy I use, it's like uh, hitting a bowling ball with a ping pong ball. It happens a lot. You know, it's actually by neutrino standards, uh, you can pretty easily hit that bowling ball with a ping pong ball, but the bowling ball rolls off only very slowly. So what you get is this very, very low energy recoil of the nucleus. And so what we were able to do for the first time is actually measure that little tiny recoil. Um, and this, this is what we, we, we pronounce it sevens. It's coherent elastic neutrino nucleus scattering and the V um, is uh, the neutrino. It's a Greek letter nu that we pronounce it V. Yeah. And um, we, we were able to make the first measurement of sevens and actually we've now done it twice in two different, two different nuclei. And so that's what that, that's what that experiment is. Yes, it's beautiful, um, especially because it's sort of a um, a free a freebie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's it's yeah. fantastic. It was just this tremendous uh, free neutrino source, and that we were able to make use of. And we're you know we have now more detectors. We're deploying more detectors there. Um, it actually connects with the supernova stuff in that um, we are actually able to study the interactions that supernova neutrinos make. Uh, so we can um, better interpret, we will be able to better interpret the data when we actually get a supernova measurement. And so there's a lot. Yeah, there. that's, 
It's really interesting, Kate. So does this give you some way to sort of fine tune the detectors? Is that is yes. that where you're heading? Yeah. Yes, no, absolutely. That is one of the goals also is to better understand the response of the detectors. And um, for, for instance, for Dune, uh, among the plans are to build uh, mini Dune-like detectors to better understand the response for uh, uh, two low energy neutrinos like those from, uh, those from the supernova. So, yeah. so, so in conclusion, let me ask you, you're doing a lot of work in this area. This is, this is a really important area because it's going to give us a lot of information. Uh, what's your sense in the next five years? Um, well, uh, it's really difficult to handicap of fireworks that's going to happen 26 million years away, light years away. But uh, what's your sense next five years? Where, where do you think we will be? Oh, that's a, a great question. So um, some of, well, many of these detectors, for instance, Dune, I mean, that's a really long time scale giant project that is not going to be done in five years. I mean, there will be certainly very good progress in five years, but um, these are such massive projects that they take much longer than that. Um, you know, I, I do expect to have uh, quite a lot of progress on that time scale. Um, Coherent is actually, and actually Dune is a, it's a giant collaboration. You know, it's like a, more than a thousand people in the in the collaboration, so it's an enormous effort. Um, Coherent is much smaller. Coherent has less than 100 people in it, um, and we I certainly expect many more results. We're we're cranking out the results um, these current current years. Um, we are deploying more detectors. We're going to have more measurements. Um, there's an upgrade planned to the to the SNS um, to um, bring the power of the protons. So the more protons, the more neutrinos. And so we expect to have um, more neutrinos also in the next uh, next several years. And so that will improve the, the quality of our results. We'll have more, more neutrinos, more detectors. Um, in um, Neutrino Alley is what we call our basement alley. Um, so that will um, expect to have much more um, exciting results coming from that. There's also a planned um, second, it's called second target station at the SNS. So we'll have more neutrinos from that as well that will allow us um, Actually, more space to big, build big, uh, build bigger detectors as well there. So, uh, but that's probably a bit more than five years out. And so, yeah, five years. I mean, I, I'm certainly hoping for more uh, results from coherent uh, collaboration. I think there's really good prospects for that. Uh, the um, other uh, experiments on the horizon, I think, are going to take more time than that. Uh, there are certainly other experiments worldwide which are still producing data, uh, and so we will, you know, that are all. Uh, improving the picture as we go along. It's it's hard to know if there'll be any, you know, sort of um, transformative, new, exciting, beyond the standard model thing. Those are things that are kind of hard to hard to predict. Hard to um, predict, yeah. for that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we have to keep going. We have to keep understanding uh, what might be out there. So, yeah. excellent. This has been great, Kate. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Okay, thank you very much. It's It's been fun. Nothing thank I love you. more than talking about neutrinos. <laughs> Thank you.